Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We are sitting aboard the Discovery vessel, which is en route to the underwater observatory in the Milford Sound, which is located deep within the Southern Alps in Fjordland on New Zealand's South Island's western coast. The boat is just warming up as the employees get on board, and they're heading out to their job, which happens to be underwater every day in the underwater observatory. Deep water emergence happens here in the Milford Sound, where fresh water, colored by tannins, floats on top of salt water, and species that normally live in depths very, very deep are closer to the surface than they normally would be. Sitting next to me is Daniel Crook, who is from Southeast England, and he is a nature-slash-kayak guide here in the Milford Sound, based off of the Discovery Center, which is literally a floating building. And I'm going to have Daniel tell you more about it later. I'm looking at a wildlife refuge called Sinbad Gully, where they're actually still finding species that aren't found anywhere else in the world, except that gully there underneath Mater Peak. There's a bit of a smell of diesel in the air from the boat. We're heading out to where you work, which has kind of become a norm for you, hey? It has become a norm over the last few years, yes. Living in a place it's very rare nowadays to be able to find somewhere that's so underpopulated by humans. Uh, there's only about 200 of us here in the summer, about 60 of us here in the winter. Looking outside, I can see a completely natural equilibrium. Everything is very in part with itself. Mida Peak, a very picturesque mountain, very specifically carved, almost like it was hand-carved itself. It's probably one of the reasons why the Maldives have such wonderful legends about Milford Sound, how it was carved out by Tutaraki Fenua and all that. So yeah, very, very picturesque, something which, if you come here, really does open your eyes as to just how beautiful the world can be. It's not all about big cities and pollution and things like that. It really gives you a chance to refresh your perspective on life. It's pretty cool stuff. Tell us a little bit more of the bigger picture before we go into specifically what you share with guests, which is the underwater world. Can you tell us a little bit more about this area? Paint the picture for someone listening who perhaps doesn't realize the size of Atafenoa and what that means, uh, the Fjordland National Park. When I was younger, I did a lot of traveling of the fjords of Norway myself. And after you see the fjords of Norway, they are magnanimous. They are beautiful. They are carved over millions upon millions of years. Being here in Fjordland, New Zealand is very much like Norway. Uh, it's taken a lot less time, but that doesn't stomp down the sheerness of these mountains. I'm traveling through Fjordland itself. You have to remember that each of these glaciers have taken millions upon millions of years to carve out what we're heading to work in now. So the Milford Discovery is sailing in what was once a giant glacier. So for anybody that would like to know a bit more about this, just try and picture yourself being 15, 20,000 years ago where the world was covered in thick sheets of ice. It really does blow out your perspective of the place sometimes. Milford Sound, for example, like I said, is very uniquely carved. We have a lot of our palisades here. Palisades, the very noticeable steps in the sides of the mountains, literally give you a detailed explanation of the many times that glaciers have carved and melted away, carved and melted away. It's a really wonderful experience to be able to come to a place like this and, like I said, really witness nature how it was supposed to be with minute human existence. But the sheer size of Fjordland itself, like I said, a lot like the fjords of Norway, are just glacier carved. You can go through miles and miles and miles of flat grassland, straight upturned mountains. We can have thousands upon thousands of waterfalls with just a very tiny amount of rain. It really is a spectacular view. You can go anywhere in the world and see nice blue skies and sunny beaches. What you can't do is go to places in the world and find 50,000 waterfalls just cascading down these mountainsides. It truly is a Jurassic Park experience. It's like you've been taken back to the prehistoric age. It's absolutely fantastic. 
So New Zealand itself obviously broke away from Australia many millions of years ago and it's very unique to see that Australia has all kinds of wonderful creatures. New Zealand has none of these creatures. You have to consider that the only land mammal that existed in New Zealand before the arrival of human beings was the bat. Since then, introduction of species such as uh, cows, sheep, even the possum, one of the most hated creatures in New Zealand, protected species over in Australia. It really does give off a sheer sense of just how forgotten New Zealand was. Now, when the Maldives came here in around about the 1500s, they named the place Aotearoa. The chiefs would climb to the toppest hills that they could find, and everything they would see around them was theirs. This is what they would claim. Aotearoa comes from the name Land of the Long White Cloud. Now, this is something that's represented all the time here in Fjordland. It's fantastic. Some mornings I can come to work, and there will be clouds broken up by the sheerness of these mountains, stretch all the way from Freshwater Basin, a couple of kilometers out to the entrance of the fjord. It's really, really amazing. Aotearoa itself, though, Atafenua is obviously our shadow land. This is just the Fjordland part of New Zealand. Now, New Zealand itself as a whole is a very unique country. During my entire travels throughout New Zealand, I've seen the countryside of England. I've seen the beaches of southern France. I've seen the hills of Spain, the fjords of Norway. New Zealand seems to have a little bit of everything, Kim. Atafenua is definitely one of those aspects which is worth seeing. Like I said, being such a prehistoric place with no variety of predators, more different creatures, some of the larger, more bizarre animals that used to live here don't exist anymore. This is partly due to the introduction of species as well as climate change and things like this. Even in Milford Sound, our glaciers are very, very slowly melting away. One of the glaciers uh, stands on top of Mount Pembroke. This is one of our tallest mountains here at 2,014 meters. Uh, I'm looking at it right now very beautiful mountain named after Pembrokeshire, which is a county back in Wales in the UK. Now, Pembrokeshire itself was one of the places that the man that discovered Milford Sound, John Grono, that's where he was from, a small town called Newport, just north of Milford Haven. And he came in and these glaciers would have been a lot bigger than they would have been a couple of K larger. But because of constant global warming, the melting away of these glaciers, they're really uh, <laughs> having a damage on the environment. One of our permanent waterfalls here, Stirling Falls, named after Commodore Frederick Stirling, is very slowly, well, in the next hundred years, definitely will be gone for sure. And it's something which you don't really want to think about. It's something which once you see, you think is going to happen forever. You have to understand to put it into perspective for you that human existence is minute compared to mother nature. Here in Milford Sound in the next 20,000 years or so we're going to have another glacial event. None of what we are sailing in right now is going to exist. None of what's built here in Milford Sound is going to exist. It's all going to be destroyed. It's all going to be ice once again, carving out once again a deeper, longer fjord. It blows my mind, but it blows everybody else's minds I meet and I get to tell them about this beautiful place that I live in, this wonderful prehistoric world. As you've been mentioned to already, Sinbad Gully is a pretty good example of this, creatures still being discovered today. Where can you go in the world and discover something new? What with Google Maps and technology and the constant geography and a paleontology that's been going on for hundreds of years now, it's impossible to even consider the fact that you could discover something new. Coming to New Zealand into a place like Atafenua that's so desolate, so uninhabited by human existence, still finding creatures that were thought extinct hundreds of years ago. One of those creatures which is extinct, unfortunately, is the Pipio. Milford Sound's Māori name is the Pipio Tahi, which was named after the Pipio, which is a thrush. Legends say that this thrush flew into the valley here to sing for its beauty. Unfortunately, this bird did go extinct in around 1905. Again, another bird that I would very much like to see alive, but we just don't know. It could be out there somewhere, just waiting to be discovered. But we're making our way on towards the Discovery Center now. The Discovery Center itself was a very unique piece of engineering. The first floating building of its kind, 95, was opened. And from there, what we're really seeing here is an underwater experience open to everybody. Because not everybody can dive, not everybody can swim. The guys that built the place really wanted to show people the uniqueness of the underwater world. And as you've already been told, we do have these tannins here. Once again, a truly, truly amazing aspect of Milford Sound. The fjords in Norway don't have these beautiful temperate rainforests that we have here in New Zealand. They don't have these beautiful long stretch mountains. Granted, sometimes they can be a lot larger and a lot longer. They lack all of the aspects that create our deep water emergence. So we're seeing animals that would usually live on the bottom of the seafloor, 1,500 meters deep, living as shallow as five here in Fjordland, New Zealand. 
it truly is an amazing experience to be able to see this. Of course, you can go diving here in Milford Sound as well. We did become a national park in 1986, as well as a marine reserve in 1993. So that just adds to the naturality of the place. This attracts so many other creatures. Our New Zealand fur seals, our kekanos, hunted to near extinction. In 25 years, went from about 6 million here in uh, Fiordland, New Zealand, to just under 100,000. It was a genocide. It wasn't until 1894 that the New Zealand government decided to uh, start clamping down on sealing, but people doing what they do best continue to hunt them anyway. So it wasn't until 1978 that these beautiful creatures were finally protected, making them one of the first protected species of creature in the whole of New Zealand. They can thrive here in Milford Sound and throughout Fiordland, New Zealand, thanks to the marine reserve status. Fish to eat, they don't have to travel for miles and miles on end. Mass fishing that humans do out in the Tasman Sea has this huge effect on animals. We could say the same about our Tawakis as well, our Fiordland crested penguins. Beautiful yellow bushy eyebrows, the third rarest penguin on the planet. These beautiful penguins exist here in Milford Sound and their colonies are growing larger because of the marine reserve status. Recent survey at Jackson's Point, which sits just north of Milford Sound here, showed that these penguins would swim many, many kilometers out into the ocean just to find their food. Quite often the chicks would starve. It's not a very good thing at all, especially for their population. Here in Milford Sound, we have about 30 to 40 breeding pairs in Harrison Cove alone. That's where the Discovery Center sits. This just goes to show that the lack of predators around here in New Zealand and the marine reserve status we have, as well as the minute existence of human beings, has gone to show that animals can survive in the wild on their own. We don't need zoos. We don't need aquariums. We don't need things like that. Let nature be how Mother Nature intended it to be, as natural as possible. The Discovery Center itself is a floating building. Being a marine reserve, it's illegal to anchor in the fjord. We can't build on the fjord. So instead, we're attached to the fjord. 10 meter steel mooring arms keeping us from floating out into the Tasman Sea. They rise and lower with the tide. Okay, and this has a very, very, very minute effect on the marine life around us. Of course, we do do our bit by making sure people don't fish, but generally before people come here to Milford Sound, they'll know whether or not to fish. The same can go for the amount of cruise boats here as well. The cruise boats taking people, hopefully lovely people like yourselves, for a tour one day through this beautiful, beautiful fjord. Now, there are 14 sounds in Fjordland. Okay, just keep in mind that Milford Sound was misnamed. We are uh, glacier-carved, not river-carved. That's the difference between the two. Again, the early Europeans didn't really know what a fjord was at the time, so this was... Uh yeah, a bit of a mistake, but they did make up for it by naming the entire national park Fjordland, New Zealand. Unfortunately, they did uh, spell Fjord with an I and not a J, which is a. So, <laughs> okay, I think it gives Fjordland, New Zealand a very unique feel about it. So, Milford Sound being the first sound in Fjordland was actually the last to be discovered. And if you ask me, I think that that was a coincidence more than anything. It's the most iconic of them all, it's the most photogenic of them all. It's truly amazing. If you folks can make your way on out here, it is definitely something worth seeing. Come when it's raining, come when it's stormy, come when it's sunny, all types of weather. Milford Sound is definitely one of those places that you must see. Absolutely beautiful. That is Daniel Crook. He is a nature guide and kayak guide here in the Milford Sound. And the boat is now slowing down. We're approaching the Discovery Center, which is an underwater observatory where Daniel is about to start his work day. And when he gets a break later on, we'll talk about his early childhood. Right next to Daniel, we're looking at a slope that's probably 600 meters high, covered in lush rainforest. Wouldn't be surprised if a dolphin popped up behind him or a seal. And he's about to start his work day, but Daniel... Here on the trail less traveled, I like to have guests share songs that remind them of places that inspire them. And this place obviously inspires you. So can you share a song with us that reminds you of your work in the underwater world of Milford Sound? Well, one of the songs that reminds me the most of this place, quite often it always puts a smile on my face when I listen to it, is a song called Forest Hymn by the very calm band known as Deep Forest. It's a combination of many soothing melodies along with a kind of choirotic vocalization. It's a very wonderful piece that really illustrates the dolphins jumping out the water, the penguins wobbling up on the beach, the waterfalls that cascading down these mountains. We will return after this short break. Hey there. Mandela here. I just wanted to take a short break from the show and tell you about the skirt that I'm currently living in while traveling around New Zealand. It was handmade in Missoula, Montana from a blend of organic hemp and cotton by my friend Karen of Karuna Clothing. Karen creates small batch 
unique product lines, which are simply beautiful. It truly is made with love, and it's the first thing I tossed into my duffel bag when packing for New Zealand. Visit karunaclothing.com to discover clothing which inspires you. That's K-A-R-U-N-A, clothing.com. Back to Mandela and the Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. It is late morning, and we're sitting at the Discovery Center, which is underwater observatory. It's a floating building, and right now I'm looking across Harrison's Cove to the Cascades, and there's about a thousand waterfalls trickling down from the rain. But in Milford, we don't really call this rain. It's more of an Irish mist. It can definitely rain heavier than it is right now. And I'm sitting here with Andrea Ferris, and she is the manager of the Discovery Center. Again, an underwater observatory giving everyone the opportunity to go underwater here, be able to look at the creatures that are only found here because of deep water emergence. And that's going to be explained further by Andrea in a moment, but deep water emergence is where we have fresh water floating on top of the dense salt water. The fresh water is colored by the tannins in the rainforest, making a darker layer on top of the salt water. Therefore, creatures that are usually in very deep parts of the ocean come closer to the surface here than they normally would because they think they're deeper than they actually are. Andrea, before we get going, you're originally from British Columbia and you've been working here at the Discovery Center in the Milford Sound for the past five years, an extremely isolated location in the Southern Alps. Can you tell the listeners what you see when you look out the window behind you and exactly how remote we are right now? Looking out the window... I guess the short answer would be all I see is my home. This is my backyard. I've got a pretty unique backyard, though, because it does go 90 meters underwater. And if you ask me, that's definitely where the Kraken lives, because he would want to be here. Mountains shooting straight up, waterfalls pouring down, going through all of the life, all the trees and everything, and just water everywhere. It's just amazing with what you're looking at. Looking across the water at the mountains coming out, when it rains with all the clouds and stuff up high, it really does look like it's coming directly from the clouds, that the waterfalls are actually pouring out like a faucet, not raining down like you'd see elsewhere. You see the clouds basically pouring out as if there's a big faucet there that somebody just turned on. So it doesn't look like waterfalls coming from a lake or any of that stuff. It actually looks like the water's just pouring directly from the clouds down our mountains into the fjord here, which is pretty awesome. So that's my backyard. That's our playground, and that's what we live with every day. So it's pretty amazing. We're here on New Zealand's South Island's west coast in the most northern fjord in Atafenua, the land of shadows, which is the Māori name for Fjordland National Park. A national park the size of whales. It's quite large. And in a moment, Andrea and I are going to record underwater. And that will be the first time the Trail Less Traveled has ever recorded underwater. But my first question for you, Andrea, is where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up in British Columbia in a small town called Armstrong. And my dad definitely felt like being outside was better than being anywhere else. He picked his career by going to a school and saying, what's outside? And he became a surveyor so he could work outside all the time. That was what I grew up with. Every holiday was camping. Everything was out in the woods as much as possible. My mom came from Eastern Canada and she wanted to get away from everything that she knew. So she went out West, met my dad, and that's where she settled. So I think I come from a line of adventurers. My grandparents met over in World War II in my grandma was Wales, so she came over on a big adventure and my grandpa decided midway through his life to completely change his entire life and become a minister and then work on a ship on the coast of British Columbia where he would go up and down servicing the lighthouses and teaching people how to integrate their beliefs into native beliefs as well. So that's a bit of a history as to where adventure came from in our family. So we kind of came by it naturally. The love for the outdoors was fostered almost 100% by my dad because he just feels that's the best place to be. And then for me, just didn't seem like it made much sense to stay in one spot. 
So when I was deciding to go to university, I picked one up far away from where I'd been, but still close enough that mom and dad could still come up every once in a while and do the laundry and bring money and all that stuff. (laughs) So I went up to a brand new university on the first year it opened up in northern BC and that's where the love for the north and just seeing different parts of Canada kind of came from. And then through the years just decided I went to the far north up in the Yukon which is beside Alaska. Spent some time there doing a full winter with 24 hours of darkness which is pretty cool. Decided to jump on down to Honduras before that decide to change careers, become a scuba dive instructor, go and live in the Caribbean. Then on a whim, decided to come to New Zealand to watch the Rugby World Cup in 2011. And that was five and a half years ago. So the adventure part of things just kind of naturally evolved with the base or foundation that I got from my parents that you don't have to be one thing. You can be all things and pick whichever one of those paths at any given time you want to take. Beautiful. We're sitting here with Andrea Ferris. She's the manager of the Discovery Center, which is an underwater observatory. And in momentarily, Andrea and I are going to walk down some steps and record underwater and talk about the life that is under the water here. Andrea Ferris is walking over towards me and it's getting darker and looking at one of the most beautiful spiral staircases I've ever seen, lit up by fluorescent lights that are kind of adjusting your eyes slowly to darkness. And man, it's gorgeous. Andrea, I'm going to hand the mic to you and you're going to multitask a little bit as you walk down the steps. Tell us about the structure and the steps you're walking down. What are they leading to? (laughs) The steps that we're leading down, this is a fully floating building. So imagine a beach ball in the shape of a barbell that's being forced underwater only it is 10 meters or 33 feet deep so a really big beach ball we're walking down the spiral stairs it's like a double helix kind of spiral stair so we can have people going down one set and up the others so one set is lit up by green neon the other one by blue so you are walking through green and blue which is our two main colors of water that we have here when we have that freshwater layer that mandela was talking about the water actually looks very green when we have enough nice days we have very blue water so right now we are standing about three meters below water You are listening to The Trail Less Traveled, and right now The Trail Less Traveled is, for the first time, being recorded underwater. We are now three meters underwater, and I'm looking out the first portal, the first window. There are fish swimming around. The light is beautifully shining through the water, which is pretty clear right now. And As I look out, I can see where salt water is mixing with fresh water. We have fresh water floating on top of the denser salt water, and when those two waters come together. It kind of looks like there's soap in the water. It's like this oily, soapy look to it, but it's simply fresh and salt water coming together. And we're heading down the steps with Andrea Ferris, who's the manager of the Discovery Center. Again, the trail as traveled is being recorded for the first time underwater. And we are underwater in Harrison's Cove, which is underneath Mount Pembroke in the Milford Sound of Fiordland National Park. Okay, so right now we are standing three meters below the water. You're starting to see some of the fish appear. We have had some rain lately. We had 46 millimeters of rain last night, which was not considered a lot of rain to us. That's kind of like a bit of liquid sunshine. So what you're seeing is a bit of murky water. This is where some of the fresh water is mixing in with the salt water. The fish are swimming through it. They're finding some food to eat, other little fish, other organic material. Everything's a little bit active, and it's this beautiful emerald green color fading up to yellowy brown where the freshwater layer is mixing in a little bit more. As we continue down, we'll see how the color changes. At the second window, we're a little bit further down. You can start to see the water's becoming a little bit clearer. It's actually that freshwater layer that makes it a little bit browner and a little bit murky, as well as the mixing layer. Where the freshwater and the saltwater mixed is called a halocline, and it almost looks like there's oil in the water. It's not, it's natural, and it's very good for all the life. It does mean we have lots of good food and organic material coming down here. So what we're seeing is a little bit more of it clearing up, a little bit more of the fish, and even some of the kelp and other plants that are desperately trying to grow on the bottom section of our big dumbbell-shaped beach ball that we're standing in here. We'll keep going. 
the shape of the building is very special and it does open up to an open bigger chamber down below where you can actually have a look around. It was built on the understanding that people would feel a little bit closed in so there is a bit of a high ceiling so you don't actually feel closed in and claustrophobic. Most people don't even notice because what you're drawn to is the fact that there is a 360 degree view with 20 windows all in a circle where you can see out to the Harrison Cove into the main part of the fjord as well as right against the back wall with the rock wall. The coolest thing that we are showing is the black coral. It is bright white. It's a very special deep water species that actually lives shallow here because of that deep water emergence. They look like white fluffy bushes, <laughs> but they're not. It's a colony of lots of little tiny animals called polyps that all live together, eating constantly, constantly growing bigger, constantly pooping, making their home bigger out of that poop, and then making more polyps. It is a continual thing that can go on for thousands of years as each polyp can die off and then make new ones so the colony continues to grow. So they're really special, bright white, Everything likes to be around them. The fish use them as places to hide, things to duck into. We even have some with snake stars living in them. These are a starfish with long, thin arms that wrap themselves around and actually help the coral be healthy. They're not a bad thing at all. The best part about being down here is that, well, other than being underwater, which is the coolest place to be in the world, but it also is that everything works. This is a marine reserve. We don't feed any of the fish. We don't do anything special to attract them other than existing. So what you get to see is actually how the fish exist in a natural way. In aquariums, a lot of times it's very forced as to what fish and what species want to live together. There's a bit more of a fight for food or they're really lazy and they don't fight for food because they get fed regularly. Here, what we're seeing is just how they would look if we weren't here because they just don't care about us at all. They're just living their lives. If you've just tuned in, we're currently recording the trail less traveled underwater. And Andrea, my guest, is describing this room that we're standing here and a 360-degree view. How many meters are we underwater, Andrea? And tell us a little bit about the fish that you see swimming around the black coral right now. At the window, standing where we are, probably about eight meters underwater. The building goes a little bit deeper. We've got a lot of fish swimming around. There's a big one, maybe 30 centimeters long, that is speckled brown and white. It's called a marble fish, because it does look marbled. Its other local name is the Maori chief, because when you look at it face on, it's got a very stern expression, and the markings on the face can look like the moku, or the tattoos on the face of a Maori chief. He is a plant eater doesn't have a swim bladder so has to lie down on things or constantly swim otherwise he sinks and I have it on authority from certain people he is not a good fish to eat he does not taste very good in fact it's fairly disgusting so we tend to leave the marble fish down eating the plants where they belong some of them we have also is little tiny oblique swimming triple fins so big long name for little tiny fish so I'm looking at the little tiny fish of which there are thousands calling oblique swimming triple fins. The best part about them is they see in here and they are actually not afraid of the big shapes that we are. They look at us as we're looking at them and it's no problem because what little fish are looking for is fast movement. So if I wave my hand at them, which I'm going to do right now, if you come up slowly and then wave really, really fast, the whole school of them swims away because they're all terrified of me waving at them. So it's a good way to exercise the fish and wave goodbye. <laughs> we also have scarlet wrasse. These are quite lovely. I'm looking at one right now. It is a female. It's very pink on the top and white on the bottom with a yellow tail. That's how we know it's the female. The males will actually get a lot bigger and go all pink. Now, the interesting things about these guys is that every single scarlet wrasse starts life as a female. So all of them have these markings and all are female. And after a few breeding seasons and when they can become the most aggressive female in the pack, they will then turn male. So this means for our colony around here, you have a few big dominant mean nasty males and a strong young breeding population of females. So that is a very smart way for these fish to perpetuate the species. But it does mean the young females, of which we have a few swimming around here now, do have to be quite aggressive to each other because unfortunately for them, the pinnacle of their life is to become a male. 
hopefully not for us. <laughs> the other fish that we have here, lots of different types of wrasse. We have the New Zealand spotty or the spotted wrasse. Now there's two fish I'm looking at right now. They look very similar in the black thumbprint that they have on their side. The pink ones with a thumbprint, they're more of a rounded fish with a sharp tail. They are butterfly perch. And then we have another one that looks like it's got a black thumbprint on the side with more of a blunt tail and yellowish colorings. They are these New Zealand spotted wrasse. They're the most common fish around this area. Those black thumbprints on the side they are supposed to be a defense mechanism to predators that it looks like an eye of a much bigger fish so the predators get confused when they are sleeping at night though butterfly perch the rounded pink ones with the black thumbprint are really awesome because they actually change all their colors. They turn to this mottled grayish, pinkish black and that spot actually blends into their body more. It's like they're putting on their pajamas at night. They all kind of hunker down near the corals on the gardens that we're looking at right now and that's where they sleep for the night. And then in the morning, they change back to their normal solid pink with these sharp black thumbprint and go about their day. So they do that every day, which is awesome. Now, one of the neat fish we're looking at, just right out to this side, that one there, it is called a variable triple fin. Now he is a fish probably about the length of your forefinger from the base of your thumb. And that one is normally have vertical stripes of brown and yellow. And right now we're looking at one that is almost all black. These ones also don't have a swim bladder, so they're sitting on the bottom and they have these fins just underneath their chin area, which perch them up so that when they're sitting on the bottom, it looks like they're looking up. This is of course to look for predators. Now this one, the reason it's almost black rather than its normal coloring is because that's what the males do when they're ready to breed. So the males turn completely black they have to find an area, make it very enticing for the females, convince a female to come over. It can take up to two weeks of courtship, which tends to involve just a lot of shuddering. And then the female will eventually lay her eggs. The male will fertilize them, the female leaves, and then it's up to the male to protect them, take care of them, and do all of the work. So it's really a cool little fish that we get to see because when they do turn black, they go from a very calm fish that usually doesn't bother anyone to extremely aggressive to any other fish, especially other male variable triple fins coming into the area. That's the voice of Andrea Ferris. She's the manager here at the Discovery Center. And right now we're in the underwater observatory. We're eight meters deep right now, which is 28 feet below the surface. And uh, this is a very special place because deep water emergence happens here. I kind of talked about it. I'd like for Andrea to tell you guys again, if you didn't hear earlier what deep water emergence is. Deep water emergence is a fancy term that was coined to basically mean that we get to see some cool stuff up shallow. So the way it happens is we have a lot of rain here. We get between seven to nine meters of rain per year. That's a lot of rain. All of that rain will then pour down the mountains. Our mountains here are on a perfect angle for all of this rain. So it doesn't go straight down. It is on a little bit of an angle. So the water actually hits the rocks and comes all the way down. We don't have a lot of soil on our mountains. What we do have though, with all this water, is a lot of moss. Now this moss will cling to the rocks and it can grow to over a meter thick. So that means we have basically a vertical ground cover all over the mountains that give this area for seeds to flourish and things to grow. And as everything grows into those mosses, their roots are weaving into each other and we are creating this giant blanket of life all over the mountains. So when all this rain comes down, it's running on the rocks. We get thousands of waterfalls, but even behind all of the life, the water is just pouring down everywhere. So the mosses are getting the water, transferring it into the plants, everything can grow like crazy. So, what it also does is as it's running down, it picks up all these dyes or tannins. This is much like pouring water through a tea bag. So the water will pour down through the life, pick up all these tannins, and we end up with a brown freshwater layer sitting on top of the salt water. So it's like tea or even the tannins you would find in red wine. And that means we have a brown freshwater layer sitting on top of the salt water. It is mixing in just like rain mixes into the ocean, but it does take some time. And because of where we are, the cove that we're situated in where we're talking right now is quite a narrow little cove in the middle of Milford Sound, 
but quite far back down towards the terminal, right at the very land side of the fjord. So that means all of the waterfalls that come down the mountains, all the water that goes into the river, everything comes here that we can actually have between nothing to a 15 meter freshwater layer. So that means all the life that lives underwater has to be ready to either run away from the freshwater or close up or some other way of hunkering down so that they don't get that fresh water in to kill them. So the underwater life is actually very unique in the way that it reacts to this freshwater layer. As you go further out to the mouth of the fjord, where the Tasman Sea is, we get a few more plants and a few more other things that can grow, but all the way back here in Harrison Cove, all the way down, probably about 13 kilometers down the fjord, we don't have many plants here, barely any. So underwater, not on the surface, of course. <laughs> underwater, though, we don't have a lot of plants because there just isn't that consistent sunlight that they can depend on, so the plants tend not to flourish. That's made an amazing thing happen here. That is part of that deepwater emergence. Not only do things live a lot shallower, but we have a huge invertebrate population underwater instead of a plant population, just because the invertebrates now have space. By invertebrates, I mean shells, lamp shell stuff, anemones, sponges, all the stuff that looks like plants but is actually animal-based and they can actually flourish down here because of the deep water emergence and the conditions that we have here with all the fresh water. Wonderful. Andrea Ferris talking to us eight meters below the surface, 28 feet deep. This is the first time the trail less traveled has ever been recorded underwater. Now Andrea and I are going to walk up upstairs again. We'll be back with you in a moment. Okay, we're back upstairs, and Andrea, you're just talking about rain running down the mountains, and I'm looking out the window, and I see it. About a million waterfalls out the window. What are you seeing? Yep, a million waterfalls would probably be right. The visible ones, the ones that most people would call as these are our waterfalls, a few hundred or even a few thousand around the fjord. But we are looking at this bank across from the Discovery Center called the Cascades. It was named because when it rains, it literally cascades with water along the entire face of it. Even where you think there isn't a waterfall, there's waterfalls running down. So if you actually counted all the water, it's either a million or just one, just really wide. <laughs> so what we're looking at is just tons and tons of greenery, tons of waterfalls coming out of the clouds. On a rainy day, you can't really see the sky, so the water's just pouring straight from the clouds. And you can't help but sing the Jurassic Park theme song and hope to see dinosaurs. Andrea has to get back to work. There's another boat coming in full of people to check out the uh, Underwater Discovery Center. Andrea, thank you so much for your time and your energy joining me here on the trail less traveled. Not a problem. Thank you very much. I just wanted to read something that has been with me my whole life from my dad. There is a pleasure in the pathless woods. There is a rapture on the lonely shore. There is a society where none intrudes by the deep sea and music in its roar. I love not man the less, but nature more. From these are interviews in which I steal from all I may be or have been before to mingle with the universe and feel what I can ne'er express yet cannot all conceal. Just makes me think of nature. Andrea, let's end this show with three bits of advice that you'd like to share with the listener. The first bit of advice I give to everybody is that everyone should learn to scuba dive. Scuba diving makes you calmer, relaxed, and appreciate things a lot more and able to handle any stress that comes into your life. So scuba diving is just the way to go. Second bit of advice would be about stop worrying about everybody looking at you and stop posting everything and stop worrying about people watching what you're doing and just be the best you can be and everyone's going to notice and come a running so don't worry so much about how many likes and all the rest of it you get online and just be yourself in real life i guess the third tip living in the middle of nowhere i guess number one tip would be make sure you're self-sufficient you know lean on people when you need to but stand on your own two feet and you'll be fine or wait i'm in new zealand she'll be right yeah <laughs> Now, Andrea, we're standing next to an acrylic window looking out at a garden full of black coral and other species that are usually found much deeper than this. And I'm just wondering, from all your time here, the past five years working here, what have you learned from these species that you look out at from the underwater observatory? <laughs> what I have learned from here, I guess that everything is more ordinary than you think and more amazing than you think. 
So after five years here, I'm constantly surprised by what I see out the windows, even though everything is as it should be, but there'll be surprises. One day we came down and there was a big octopus crawling across the window, and that's not usually the view you get to see of the octopuses from the sucker side. So to me, that was one of the most amazing things I have ever seen in my life. And it was at a place that I've looked through these windows a thousand million times and still can be surprised. So maybe that's what it's taught me. Andrea, what song reminds you of the underwater world here in the Milford Sound? In the last year, I guess the song that really resonates One Republic, and there's just a line in there about everything that drowns you makes me feel alive. And that's what it's like living in Milford is... I work in an underwater observatory, we do diving, we do kayaking, we're on boats, all of this stuff, and what other people could be fear of, or things that drown you, things that aren't supposed to be things that you love, are what really make me feel alive. So that just resonated. And now back to the trail less traveled with Mandela. We are at the Discovery Center Underwater Observatory in the Milford Sound in Fiordland National Park on New Zealand's South Island's west coast. Right now on the surface, I'm joined again with Dan Crook, who is from southeastern England, and he has been here in New Zealand for the past three years. He is a nature guide and kayak guide here at the Discovery Center. Now, Dan, let's head underwater, hey, and talk about the underwater world. So Mandela and myself are just about to descend 10 meters beneath the surface of the fjord to a completely natural marine environment. 450 tons solid steel container placed just beneath the surface of the ocean here. Some of the life we're going to be seeing downstairs is some of the rarest animals on the planet, and this is thanks to our deep water emergence effect. Okay, so Mandela and myself are now in the underwater viewing chamber. So this chamber here can hold around about 60 people, very, very bare at the moment. So the chamber that we're standing in was constructed down in Invercargill. Now that's a city just down south here on the South Island of New Zealand. It's constructed in three separate parts. The chamber that we're standing in, the stairwell that we descend down, and of course the ventilation shafts just up on the very top. Now they put it together a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. Now we have no industrial cranes, no industrial dockyards here in Milford Sound itself. So it had to be built elsewhere. So they popped the three things together, done them all up, and installed our beautiful windows here. Now these windows are actually a plastic type, and they're known as acrylic. The reason why we use them is because of the magnification aspect. So we have acrylic, which only magnifies by around about 13, 14%. Means that everything we're seeing outside is pretty much its actual size. Glass, on the other hand, magnifies by about 33%, which turns something very small into something pretty big. Also, acrylic is a lot more durable. These windows here can hold up to about 10 tons of water pressure. This is probably thanks to their thickness as well. 121 millimeters thick. They weigh 160 kilograms and cost on average about $10,000 each. We have 24 of these windows in the underwater chamber, including the stairwell. The reason for their cost, I can imagine, is because of where they were made. Jena in East Germany by a company called Schott were nice enough to make these beautiful windows for us. So the chamber itself, once the windows were installed, were actually floated 400 meters behind a tugboat and into Milford Sound. This took a few days to bring up the coast. And the reason for that is because we are three times the height of the Homer Tunnel, the tunnel that leads into Milford Sound, the only road that leads into Milford Sound. So they couldn't bring it in via any truck or things like that. They also couldn't float in the individual parts. Once again, no cranes, no industrial dockyards, very, very health and safety orientated down here. So once the building was brought in, it was met up with our discovery center. Now the main reception area upstairs was built here in Milford Sound, just down in Deepwater Basin. Sits about 100 meters to the bottom, makes it a natural anchorage. Now from the man that built this place has told me that it was uh, one of the worst winters they ever had. So they had a bit of trouble doing it. But they brought in five 26 meter long steel pontoons. They placed them into the water and built the discovery center from the water up. Once it was pushed out here to Harrison Cove, the two met. The chamber was sunk with three meters of concrete beneath the floor here. And that's when we opened up on the 6th of December, 1995. Now I'm looking out the windows here at the moment and we're seeing lots and lots of wonderful different types of wildlife, especially our gardens. Now this is where a lot of our wildlife sits. The gardens themselves are also a man-made structure. 
these gardens here are 10 normal steel garden boxes anything you could grow things like carrots and things like that and they were actually filled with sand sediment and rock lowered to the bottom of the sea floor here and then left for 10 years to grow and fester on their own so in 95 when this building was finally open they were raised up from the sea floor attached to the side of the tank here where we've been open now for the last 21 years so that's 31 years of natural untouched growth the reason they wanted to do this was to uh, attract any creature the deep water emergence had an effect on to come and live here with us in Milford Sound their effect worked very very well indeed now I myself enjoy reading and painting model soldiers and things like that but to watch something grow for 10 years uh, yeah it's a little bit out of my train but what we're actually seeing here is many many different varieties of creature namely so our black coral which to your surprise guys might actually come off as a little bit queer what we're seeing here is actually a nice white bush looking creature okay so why do we call it black coral we have to look a little bit closer what we would be finding under a magnifying glass is hundreds and thousands of tiny tiny animals known as polyps these polyps here they have six fleshy arms and a mouth they enjoy feeding out of the open ocean for 24 hours a day continuously now because they're constantly eating they're producing a waste now that waste is jet black in color it's a very hard protein base known as chitin very similar to keratin what you folks can actually find in your fingernails in your hair grows 10 times as slowly only about 0.5 to a centimeter a year making them some of the slowest growing animals on the planet as well as some of the longest living so between 300 and 4,000 years, a standard colony can grow for. So, you know, you're swimming through the open ocean, you come across a 4,000-year-old black coral would have started growing in ancient Egypt, so a very, very long time ago. The polyps themselves only live for around about 40 to 60 years. This is before they die off. Now they can reproduce asexually as well as releasing spores into the water, just like any other coral. But the chitin that they produce stands the test of time. This will continue to grow for new polyps to spread onto, and it's known as a sympodial creature. This is where it gets its plant-like shape. So rather than just growing up in a straight line, it spreads out in all sorts of different directions, and this is what helps with its buoyancy in the water. Because it's not a plant, it has no root system. Therefore, what they do, they produce a cement-like sediment. This attaches itself to any muscle, rock, or uh, crevice that they can find, and this is when their colonies begin to grow. So the ones we're seeing down here, they're guys, between 70 and 135 years old. They're very, very old creatures. These black corals here were transplanted into these gardens, and uh, this was through a lot of permission from the Department of Conservation, as well as the New Zealand government. Now, black corals themselves are protected here in New Zealand. $10,000 fine if you are caught removing them dead or alive from the fjord. But why would you want to remove black coral? Well, it's quite simple. Human beings, doing what we do best, have this constant urge to make jewelry from everything rare. The chitin, the poop from these polyps, are used for necklaces, bracelets, earrings, things like that. But it's not sustainable, okay? In fact, if people were to harvest black coral here in Fjordland, we could see their species disappearing within 10 years or so. Okay, we do not want that. So this is why they have that endangerment in place there. So uh, yeah, lots of permission to have them popped in. And they share these gardens with a variety of different creatures, such as our Fjordic horse mussels. Now, uh, I've been told by a man from Taranaki on the North Island. He was here in 1987 with his father. Fishing in the fjord, pulled up a horse mussel about half a meter long. That's a blooming big mussel. So uh, yeah, pretty big once again one of the only other animals that were transplanted some of the naturally grown ones we can see here today guys are for example our sponges these big orange ones that we're seeing outside here are actually known as a sleaze of sponges like a shoal of fish or a herd of cows well a group of sponges is called a sleaze no idea where the name came from but pretty unique i think and sponges here are some of the oldest known creatures to early human civilization 600 bc in ancient greece aristotle homer socrates famous Greek philosophers often mentioning about them being used to bathe the human body, which meant that the Greeks were actively walking down to the Aegean, collecting these sponges and popping them in their bathhouses. Sponges are very, very good for exfoliation, which of course nowadays you can find all kinds of artificial sponges, though you can still buy a few real sea sponges. A few of these other creatures around here as well, such as our anemones. Now these anemones, anyone that's seen Finding Nemo will know what an anemone is. His anemones will send out small electrical currents in the water to sting the micro and phytoplankton, anything they can find before pulling it into the center of its body. If that description doesn't help you, just think of the Sarlacc pit from Return of the Jedi. It's pretty much the same thing. That's what, yeah, that's what I like to think of. <laughs> Some people that come here are quite surprised how our gardens are not as colorful as they were expecting. So there are other things in the world, for example, the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, where you get a lot of beautiful, colorful corals, yellow, green, blue, red, those sorts of things. 
Our corals, for example, one of the reasons that they are white is because they're deep sea. They can feed straight out of the open water, collecting all kinds of different nutrients and animals. Corals living in shallower areas do not have this advantage. So instead, they have an algae that grow within their mouth. It's known as a zooxanthellae. Took me forever to learn that word. But a zooxanthellae absorbs sunlight from the sun. It photosynthesizes and produces a waste, which feeds a single polyp. Okay, so this is what gives them all their kinds of different beautiful colors, okay, because they're living so shallow. These ones that we're seeing out the front here, this is the only place in the world you can go without using deep sea scuba diving equipment as well as submarines to see these beautiful creatures without getting wet. And I'm not a big fan of sharks, so I'm quite happy about that as well. Lots of sharks here in Milford Sound as well. We can find quite a few seven gill sharks. We can find some spiny dogfish, and we have had uh, makos and blue sharks in here as well. So, not a big fan of that. No great whites, as far as I know. We do have sometimes a very thick freshwater layer here. Being surface breaches, sometimes great whites would probably end up drowning in that freshwater, as well as it just being too darn cold here. You are on the trail less traveled, the community's source for adventure information and inspiration. And today, the trail less traveled is being recorded underwater for the first time. My guest is Daniel Crook, and he is a nature guide and kayak guide here. Just kind of talking about the species that he sees out the window as we look out from 10 meters, but for Americans, that would be 28 feet below the surface. So Daniel, while you were talking, I saw a couple tube worms, as you call them, and looking at them, it looks like a little tube with a beautiful white little poof coming out the end. Can you tell us about that species? I can indeed, Mandela. These little guys here are tube worms, and they are often mistaken for tiny black corals by a lot of people that come here. Tube worms themselves are actually closely related to our anemone friends that I was speaking about earlier. These tube worms do relatively the same thing. They'll actually just flail their arms around in the water, collect anything that comes through in the current, kind of like a big sticky bush. Quite often you will see them suck themselves down, okay? They actually form a very kind of soft tissue paper-like outer shell. So uh, if you see a fish swim over one, it's more than likely to pop itself away. This is just some of the life in our gardens there, guys, but it's not just the gardens out front that is very interesting to us here. Uh, we also have the rock wall behind the chamber. Now, the gardens themselves are actually pretty plentiful. Now, this is because we can lower them down about another six to seven meters. This keeps them out of the freshwater layer. Too much freshwater will end up killing a lot of these animals, and quite often I don't actually have 10 grand to spare, so I don't really fancy being fine that. On the backside of us, though, we have our rock wall, and it's a completely different vibe what we're getting from here. What we're seeing is a very dead rock surface. This is because of thousands of years of that fresh water has completely disabled anything from growing. So what I'm looking at right now is our rock wall behind the underwater observatory. This rock wall here sits, once again, 10 meters beneath the surface. And it's disabled any kind of life from living here. That's because of the thousands of years of fresh water coming up and down, which has pretty much stopped anything from growing. So instead, we do actually have some migratory animals. And one of the animals that I'm looking at right now there, guys, is one of our 11 armed sea stars. Now, these 11 armed sea stars, named appropriately, they do have 11 arms. These 11 arms are quite uh, easy to lose, to put it bluntly. They can actually tear off their arms and leave them behind if they're feeling threatened by a different kind of species. Now these sea stars are actually very closely related to our crown of thorns that you can find in Australia. If anyone's ever been to the Great Barrier Reef, you might have heard of crown of thorns before, a very nasty predatory starfish that like to eat up all of their corals. Now this caused a bit of a pandemic a few years ago where a few of the Aussie divers went down, chopped them all up, only to find that they were growing into more. So this is one of the regenerative powers that these guys have. They can actually uh, tear themselves in half to produce two separate starfish. It's one of their many ways of reproduction. Just like everything else, they can also release spores into the water, as well as some different types of species, sperm and eggs too. Now these sea stars I'm looking at are relatively medium to large size. We can have some very large ones and very small ones as well. These guys around here will only really eat mussels and each other though. These 11 armed sea stars, they don't eat corals. It's quite a wonderful thing to see, one feeding. It takes quite a while for them to do. They'll actually end up pushing that muscle using their thousands of suction cups into the center of their body. This is when they'll find an opening in the shell. They'll release their stomach, produce a digestive juice. This actually melts down the muscle and uh, they end up kind of drinking it a bit like a soup or a slushy, something very nasty like that. Funnily enough, though, another creature that we have around here is our sea cucumbers. These sea cucumbers are, again, relatively closely related to these sea stars. 
So we're uh, looking at one of our sea cucumbers here. It's rather hard to see at the moment. This is because of the freshwater layer that we have. It's actually mixing up a little bit down here. It's what's creating a bit of the blurriness. This is because of the rain recently. The rain recently is now sitting on top of the salt water. It hasn't had enough time to mix in with the salt water. And this is what's giving us our freshwater layer. Um, I've seen it without freshwater before. It's crystal clear blue. It's very beautiful. I've also seen it at 13 meters before. It's pitch black down here, even on a nice hot blue sunny day. So it's pretty amazing stuff. And again, one of the reasons why some of these beautiful creatures can live around here and yeah i'm looking at one of our sea cucumbers right now a little bit blurred by this freshwater layer these sea cucumbers here have very kind of nipple-like arms that they'll pass food to their mouth now apart from looking very disgusting kind of like an underwater soggy cucumber these guys have no real form of defense apart from one and this is the Releasing of their insides, their intestines. They actually poop out their intestines through the anus, and this comes out in a very white, gooey form. Gives off the impression it's poisonous. So uh, creatures will leave it alone. But rather than dying from lack of an organ, they'll actually regrow their intestines and then just carry on as if nothing had happened. If anyone here has ever seen Jackass 2, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. On top of that though, guys, these sea cucumbers are very, very popular, especially in Asia. China alone will spend about a thousand New Zealand dollars per kilogram. Okay, this is because here in New Zealand, they're very big and very juicy. If you've ever seen the farm sea cucumber, they're kind of like small pickles. Not very nice to look at or eat at all. But the freshwater layer today is down around about a meter or so, I believe. And this freshwater layer, once again, has been caused by the many, many, many waterfalls that we've accumulated. Now I say many, many, many waterfalls. This is actually nothing compared to what we can have. Like I said to you folks earlier, just half a day of heavy rain, about 50,000 waterfalls stretching throughout here. I literally can't describe it. It's amazing. This freshwater layer is what's allowing all of these creatures to come on up, as well as a variety of different fish as well, and the black corals that I spoke about earlier. Some very, very beautiful um, white black corals. In fact, that's two pieces of information you guys can take home with you today, is that Milford Sound is not a sound, it is a fjord, glacier car valley. Black coral is not black, it is white. Beautiful. You were on the trail less traveled, and today the trail less traveled is being recorded underwater for the first time. My guest Daniel Crook and I are approximately 28 feet below the surface, about 10 meters. Daniel, thank you so much for your energy and your time today meeting me here on the trail less traveled. You're more than welcome, Mandela. And just for everyone that's listening out there, if you get your chance to head on out, put your boots on and just get doing it. You don't know what life is until you experience it firsthand. Uh, and I can tell you, knowing that I've done that myself. Um, good luck, folks. That's awesome. I actually was going to ask you for three bits of advice you'd like to share with the listeners. So maybe do you have two more bits of advice you can share with us? I do indeed. So Milford Sound is quite commonly mistaken for a very beautiful sunny paradise. And don't get me wrong, guys, it can be a very beautiful sunny paradise. But please don't forget, we are a rainforest. Okay, so definitely bring yourself some spare panties and socks if you do come. It is a very, very uh, kind of wet place around here. I would also recommend getting to know a little bit about the area beforehand. Lots of people come down here assuming that we'll have normal facilities like the outside world. And we only have one little solar-powered petrol station, which doesn't work half the time because of our clouds. And please, guys, there's no supermarkets around here. There's no McDonald's. There's no KFC. If you need food, please bring it before you come on down. Wonderful. Dan, you chose a song earlier in the show that reminded you of the weather in the Milford Sound. And that song was for good weather. And yeah, we're lucky when we have a nice sunny day, but a lot of the times it is raining here because this place gets on average six to nine meters per year. Last year, there was 9.7 meters of rainfall here. And that's about three times as much rainfall as the Amazon rainforest. So assuming that more rain is on its way, what's your epic weather song for Pio Pio Tahe, the Milford Sound in Atafenua, the land of shadows, in Fjordland National Park? Well, Mandela, my epic song for epic weather is a song known as Serenata Immortal. It's a song by a orchestrated rock band known as Immediate Music. It really does illustrate the opening to a very soft kind of opening chord before a very orchestrated rock center. You can close your eyes while listening to this song. Imagine yourself cruising down the fjord, 50,000 waterfalls before you crashing down. You have this beautiful orchestrated rock playing in your ear. Every time this song comes on, it truly does remind me of why I'm here, to really show that Mother Nature is the true aspect of life down here, not human beings. Namaste, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to collecting sound effects and interviews from the most remote locations around the world. Subscribe to the free iTunes podcast and visit traillesstraveled.net to see pictures, archive previous shows, and contact me. I would like to thank my guests for this week, Daniel Crook and Andrea Ferris. 
Daniel and Andrea are both nature guides at the Discovery Center Underwater Observatory in Piopiotahe, Atafenua, the Milford Sound in Fiordland National Park. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and my goal for the show is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Therefore, every week I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled in the mountains of Missoula, Montana, or on location around the world in order for me to find these adventurers and connect with them in their natural environment. Tonight's episode was the first time the Trail Less Traveled has ever been recorded underwater. You can catch the show every Sunday night at 6 and Tuesday night at 10. My adventure tip this week pertains to staying warm when swimming in cold water. You can wear two caps on your head or a neoprene cap because you'll lose most of your heat through your head. And doubling up on your cappage will help you keep your heat in. You can also wear earplugs. When the water drops below 60 degrees, earplugs may work well in keeping your core temperature up. Well, that's it for this week's adventure, my friends around the world. But until next week's adventure, please get outside and shred the gnar. Because as you know, the gnar simply does not shred itself.